I'm smiling because I was talking to another old friend the other day, and he's going to vote for Trump again. He said he voted for Trump um, nervously in 2016. This time he's going to vote for him enthusiastically. And I was asking him about why and so on and about liberal objections. And he said, no, that the problem, <laughs> the problem with progressives is that they don't really have good information. Hello. Welcome to the live recording of the Crosscut Talks podcast. I'm Mark Baumgarten, Managing Editor at Crosscut. And this week, I'm speaking with journalists Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun. For three decades now, Nick and Cheryl have been putting a human face on some of the greatest political and economic struggles of our time, shining a spotlight on tragedy, helping to shape global response, and winning a few Pulitzers along the way. Nick is a columnist for the New York Times, and Cheryl currently works as a consultant in technology and healthcare. They're married, and they run a family farm in Yamhill, Oregon, which is just a few miles from here down I-5. And, of course, they continue to write books together. At the beginning of the year, before all hell broke loose, they published their fifth book. It's called Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. In it, they explore the plight of the American middle class in the last half century, largely focusing on the people Nick grew up with in Yamhill. It is a sobering read, an infuriating read, and at times, yeah, it's, it's a hopeful read too. So Cheryl, Nick, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Delighted to be with you. Absolutely, Mark. So uh, can I read a quick passage from your book to kind of maybe set the stage here a bit? Absolutely. Sure. Okay, so you write... To a degree unnoticed in more privileged parts of America, working-class communities have collapsed into a miasma of unemployment, broken families, drugs, obesity, and early death. America created the first truly middle-class society in the world, but now a large share of Americans feel themselves at risk of tumbling out of that security and comfort. There is a brittleness of life for about 150 million Americans with a constant risk that sickness, layoffs, or a car accident will cause everything to collapse. So you wrote that before the pandemic. And if many Americans were on a tightrope before, which is what you write in the book, now it probably feels more like they're maybe just stepping off a cliff and hoping they hit a branch on the way down. After reading the book, I feel like I know so many people in your community in Yamhill, and I'm curious, how they're doing now? Well, um, yeah, I mean, a lot have fallen off that tightrope. We wrote about issues like unemployment. Well, another 11 million people are unemployed now. Uh, we wrote about uh, ed educational failure. Uh, McKinsey predicts another 1 million high school dropouts as a consequence of school closures. Uh, we wrote about social isolation um, and, you know, the toll of that. Uh, the CDC says another 13% of Americans have either begun new uh, dependencies or increased their, their drug dependencies. And, you know, and meanwhile, we wrote about the toll of lack of health care. And it's pretty obvious, I hope to all, that in the middle of a plague, that uh, when you don't have universal health care, that's a disaster for all. And, you know, the people we wrote about have quite predictably suffered a great deal um, in every in every possible way. One of the, the family we, we open the book with is the Knapp family, um, five kids that I grew up with. Um, and the time we, we wrote the book, uh, four of them 
were gone. And uh, the youngest, Keelan, was the sole survivor. And he'd survived largely because he'd spent 13 years in prison. And then early in the COVID crisis, he lost his job. And uh, at the end of March, he died from a heroin overdose. And so now all five kids are gone. Their mom is still alive. And, you know, I think when I think of the toll of this crisis, I think of the NAPS. Now, I do also want to add that uh, while the crisis has been, has basically magnified every single part of, of what we wrote about in Tightrope, uh, I think that it's also important to say is that it didn't have to be this way. I mean, actually, we did not have to manage uh, the crisis in this fashion. Uh, if you look at other countries around the world, uh, there are uh, other countries that have nowhere near the kind of disastrous outcomes that we have. Is it something about the American character that sets us up for this kind of a response to uh, the pandemic? You know, you, you write in the book quite a bit about the narrative of personal responsibility, right? That we are made to think that failings um, of the individual are, are purely uh, built on the choices of the individual. And I just wonder, how does that sort of idea play out in the pandemic? Is that what's really making America unique? In one dimension, absolutely, it does make America unique. And the funny thing is, is that this whole notion of personal responsibility and the idea of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps is really important. That actually, that phrase, um, you know, originated in the late 1800s and it actually meant uh, to do the impossible because physically it is really impossible to lift yourself up by the bootstraps. Then in the 1970s, the, it started to take on a new meaning. And it started to mean this is what you are supposed to do, because if you dig yourself in a hole, you've got to pull yourself out. You've got to dig your way out. And so that, but that just sort of underscores that it's not intrinsic to the American experience, that indeed yeah. these narratives are not part of American society, part of the American story. They are relatively new. They've emerged over the last 50 years. And so I think there is a misperception that somehow you know, Americans are intrinsically hostile to government or averse to science or incapable of managing this kind of thing. No, this is a result of trends over the last 50 years of bad choices that we as a country have made. There's another, well, there are a few crises going on right now, right? There, we have the pandemic, we have the economic crisis, and then, and then we have this crisis around racism in this country, which is not anything new, but has certainly become newly inflamed. And, you know, it's, again, this is another crisis that unfolded after this book was published. But Nick, you, um, you wrote a column a few months ago that I thought was, was pretty interesting that built on some of the things in this book. And um, uh, I was hoping you could expand on it here a little bit. You know, it was about a month into the protests against racism this summer. And you said that the declines the working class has seen in the last 50 years, which you were, were just talking about, and which are really unique to America, are, are really connected to racism in this country. You call it the boomerang effect. Can, can you just explain how, how that works and, and how racism is really feeding into this decline for the entire nation? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Yamhill is a lily white community. And 
I think back in the 1990s, there were a lot of Americans in Yamhill and in a lot of white communities around the country who looked at the stress and trouble in African-American communities and said, ah, you know, the problem is deadbeat dads. It's people making bad choices, lack of personal responsibility. And meanwhile, there was a great Harvard sociologist, William Julius Wilson, said, no, it's about jobs. It's about job losses. And he was exactly right, because when jobs left Yam Hill a generation later, when they left West Virginia, when they left northern Maine, the same patterns and pathologies unfolded. And I think it does go back to some degree, a lot of the, the problems we're talking about, to Nixon's Southern strategy, uh, 968, to the pattern of underinvesting in human capital because, for fear that African Americans would disproportionately benefit from those investments in education and healthcare, et cetera. And so why is it that the U.S. did not follow the pattern of Europe and Canada in expanding healthcare and equalizing education? I think indeed it was uh, a kind of a structural racism. And Obviously, at one level, the, the the biggest victims of that were kids of color and communities of color. But in a larger sense, those same areas, you know, it was also much of the white population who then uh, had lower high school graduation rates, uh, were less likely to go to college, were less able to compete in the economy. And I think that that is one reason why... You have tech hubs in on the West Coast and why Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, despite lower taxes, are not able to compete in the modern market. It was this boomerang effect. People aimed at black communities and ended up undermining the competitiveness of their entire states. What um, is this a concept that you feel or that you have discussed um, with the the subjects of your book? I mean, is this something that they, that they understand, that they're open to? In general, mo many of the subjects of the book have a quite different interpretation of politics. You know, uh, we tend to be more progressive and they have lived this experience and they have emerged more conservative. They've, uh, you know, many of them are voting on Tuesday for President Trump for his reelection. So they're, their narrative, their interpretation is quite different. And indeed, because many of them have imbibed and internalized this personal responsibility narrative, their own difficulties are especially burdensome. Um, but they, I'd say that there has been some evolution in time. And that's why around the country, you know, you see a retreat from mass incarceration. You see an increasing willingness to provide drug treatment. You see a reframing of the issue from junkies to people in need of treatment as more whites need care, uh, then, we, then we become more compassionate. Um, and I guess I'd also say that, you know, there, I think there's a sort of misperception that the white working class is inevitably conservative. And it's more complicated than that. They tend to be socially conservative on issues like abortion or guns, but economically often liberal on issues like raising the minimum wage, about um, uh, national pre-K, uh, about health care even to some degree. And so it's, um, I, I think people are a little bit ambivalent about some of these issues, but they, they listen to us. You know, for example, one of the families that we also write about, the Greens, 
We specifically mm-hmm. focus on Clayton Green, who uh, worked on the family farm for many, many years. He, um, you know, didn't graduate from high school, but, you know, he can beat anyone hands down on fixing a carburetor or a tractor. I mean, Nick right. is really at, at a loss <laughs> when it comes to that, I have to say. Um, but, you know, uh, the family uh, obviously uh, disintegrated. Um, uh, Clayton's older brother, Kevin, who used to run track with Nick, uh, he lost his job, and that was the beginning of a downward spiral in drugs and alcohol, and he ended up, you know, dying early, very early. Uh, and then Clayton himself, um, he basically expanded to 400 pounds, um, and yet we know him as a really solid individual who was so helpful to us on the farm. Um, and he was in the hospital, in and out, for the last year of his life many, many times. And his mom, Irene Green, was very aware that they were... Uh, being helped by Medicaid. He said, I mean, she basically was saying, we're so thankful that he can actually get treated at the hospital, you know, and we don't have to, you know, foot the bills and they will pay for it. So she was acutely aware that she was getting government help and she wasn't, um, uh, you know, resentful of it. She wasn't angry that the government was big government. So I think that there was a tacit admission and understanding that, you know, it's okay uh, to actually get some help from the government. Hmm. I mean, one of our frustrations was that the we as a society, we invested in my friends and classmates incarceration, but not in their education. If we as a society had invested in these kids in early childhood or in making sure they got through high school or in job retraining or drug treatment, then a quarter of the kids on my school bus would not be dead right now. Instead, we invested in incarcerating them at great expense in ways that just magnified the family breakup, magnified the problems for the kids, and didn't help them at all. There is a really interesting um, story that you tell in the book that I think really exemplifies the, the uniqueness of America in terms of being able to respond to, to tragedy or to economic difficulties in the Great Recession with out-of-work auto workers, uh, where you're looking at the response to auto workers losing their jobs in Detroit and in Windsor, which are right next door to each other, but two different countries. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you found there. And then can you maybe extrapolate into what that might mean an American recovery from the pandemic might look like? So this is a very interesting uh, example because it allows us to see what uh, is possible. So if you look at what happened after the Great Recession, we had automakers laying off people in Detroit, but also in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, right across the border. Often it was the same automaker (laughs) laying off people. So you really could compare. So in Detroit, what happened was basically that people lost their job, but because their health care came with their job, they also lost health care for families. And so you can imagine... I mean, Detroit itself had other possibilities, but, you know, in the satellite areas around Detroit, one company towns, it's very difficult to find another job. So these people, you know, they got unemployment insurance a little bit more because of the Great Recession, but uh, they still were, you know, just, you know, what do we do? So then over in Canada, in Windsor, Ontario, what happened was, of course, the workers lost their job as well, but they did not lose their health care because Canada has national health care. And so the families were spared an additional burden. The other thing that happened was that the government kicked in and said, okay, let's see what other uh, areas require workers um, in this region because we need to figure out how these people, all these 
large swaths of people are going to find work again. And they discovered that healthcare had a need. So they facilitated some training programs, retraining programs for um, auto workers to learn a little bit more about healthcare. And the result was these people were ushered back into the workday world much more quickly. You know, years later, they had their health care. They, they were not, you know, self-medicating. They were not depressed. They were not lonely. And we know what happened in Detroit. It took a long time for Detroit to get back on its feet. So the point is that there can be targeted government interventions. And this is not like full-time, long-time subsidies. This is targeted interventions that actually just give you a nudge, a little bit of help when it's needed, and then step back. And that's the kind of um, targeted intervention that we are actually arguing for because, you know, it, it, it's a win-win for everybody to get back on their feet, to get a job as soon as possible, contribute to the GDP of the, of the nation. And in terms of your question about how the U.S. recovery will compare to Canada's, you know, I think that there's reason to be deeply concerned about directions ahead. And we don't, it sure doesn't look like it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. Maybe it'll be a U if we're optimistic, but, or maybe, maybe there'll be so many businesses that close down that the recovery will be more slow. But whatever the shape of that recovery, we know that there are going to be many, many Americans who will suffer long-term health problems, not only because of COVID infections, but also because they're not getting preventive health care during this period. They're not getting uh, cancer screenings. Uh, they're not getting uh, colonoscopies, et cetera, et cetera. And so we may see an increase there. We will. We also expect to see an increase in uh, drug abuse in a country that already has 70,000 people dying a year from overdoses, you know, way more than Canada. And the inequities in the U.S. that result in many cases from educational gaps, those too will be magnified because there is this huge burst of, of high school dropouts now across the country in marginalized communities. In each of those areas, Canada has figured out how to create better educational equity, how to provide better job training to reskill workers, and uh, how to provide everybody with health care. Whereas the U.S. in each of those cases faces burdens and stumbling blocks that I think will slow our recovery, not only for individuals, but also for the country as a whole. Living through these last nine months, it, it, it feels that a lot of the issues that you have written about have become even more pronounced. They have become uh, very hot button political issues. And there is a lot of campaigning around trying to change people's minds around these issues. And I know we spoke about um, President Trump a little bit earlier. In the book, you do touch on presidential politics a bit. You talk about Donald Trump. You talk about people who voted for him, who were not well served by his policies, but planned to vote for him nonetheless. That was before the pandemic. Have you had conversations with your neighbors in Yamhill about their their support for for the president? Are they are they still feeling that support? Is the last nine months changing anybody's minds at all? It's changed attitudes less than I might have thought. So Yamhill mostly voted for Trump in 2016, uh, partly out of economic desperation, um, and I think. A majority of people are likely to vote for him again. People are, in many cases, are a little skeptical of COVID-19. Uh, Oregon has been hit less by COVID than you know, Washington or California or Idaho, and it's not as real to people. And so 
I mean, from my point of view, I think President Trump has bungled it. They don't no, they don't believe that. Um, I think there is some distress at his tweets, at the way he is unpresidential. But maybe the biggest burden is simply the economy. And people don't really know whether to blame him. But they see that, you know, that they are losing jobs. Or one of my, one of our friends uh, that we write about, Mary Mayer, she sells birdhouses. At, she makes birdhouses and sells them at farmer's markets. And a lot of farmer's markets were closed down. Um, but Mary is still going to vote for, uh, for Trump again. Another friend of mine, though, uh, Janie, uh, she was in anguish because she is a deeply committed Christian and cares a lot about abortion. And she didn't like Trump, but thought that the abortion issue would lead her to vote for Trump again. But she just told me in the last few days that uh, she's thought about it and decides that pro-life is about a lot more than abortion. And so she will vote uh, for Biden. So there is some movement. You know, I think like in Washington State, you know, there are a lot of folks who are just living in their Facebook feeds and their Facebook feeds have so much just extraordinary, you know, QAnon conspiracies and misinformation. And if that's all the reinforcement you're getting and all your friends are telling you this, you know, we, we saw this with, you know, all these rumors about Antifa arsonists setting fires and this kind of thing. And, right. um, you know, when we were back there on our most recent visit, we visited a, uh, we parked our car to look at a, a nearby forest and somebody thought that we were Antifa arsonists and called the sheriff. I mean, it just, you know, it feels like the social fabric sometimes is just kind of becoming unglued because of these conspiracy theories. Wait, somebody thought that you were Antifa? Thought that we had, were, <laughs> we were Antifa going arsonists. to try and, you know, light a fire in the forest. <laughs> They and rolled so a they, log yeah. behind our vehicle, so we couldn't, we couldn't get away. Yeah, they wouldn't let us get sheriff. away. And the sheriff just started driving by as soon as we were going back to our car. It was like, my goodness, how did? <laughs> Obviously, the sheriff was waiting there for us to come back. Uh, this is something that I wanted to talk to you about because you know, in reading in reading your book, the one thing that's that's really largely missing from it is is really any conversation about social media or misinformation. And, you know, the dominant narrative right now, I think if you if you um, if you ask people in liberal enclaves about, you know, what's going on, what's the difference between you and a Trump voter in rural Washington or rural Oregon? They might say, well, the the difference is that um, I don't believe misinformation that I see on the Internet. And I I just wonder, was that a conscious decision about not including that? Um, Because it certainly has been an issue since the 2016 election. You know, it was really that there is just so much to to say that we did not get into social media. I would, you know, I'm just I'm smiling because I was talking to another old friend the other day and he's going to vote for uh, Trump again. He said he voted for Trump um, nervously in 2016. This time he's going to vote for him enthusiastically. And I was asking him about why and so on and about liberal objections. And he said, you know, that the problem, the problem with progressives is that they don't really have good information. And I just, you right. know, he's, it's just kind of the reciprocal of, of my society and all his friends get together and say, oh, progressives just don't understand the world. Well, you know, we wrote in the book that there was this one person who lives right down the road from us. And, you know, we know him as a decent guy. He's helped us many, many times. So he's very reliable. Uh, And um, we were talking to him about, you know, what he watches on TV. And he was saying, you know, I I am very upset about the rivalry, how the divisiveness in this country is really tearing us apart. 
And so I do, he watches Fox News. He goes, every once in a while, I wanted to see what the other side is watching. So, but the, and the other night, I was watching CNN, but I just can't watch CNN anymore because it's all lies. And we were like, oh, really? And, but he comes up with some of the things that he's seen uh, that just surprise us. Like, for instance, he said Google was, was really, you know, anti-religious, uh, anti-Christian. And we said, what do you mean Google? How could Google be anti-Christian? you know, Christian? He said, well, you know, if you actually type in the Jewish religion, you'll get a response from Google. Or you're talking to Google Home. They'll tell you what the Jewish religion is. If you ask um, Google Home what Islam is, it'll tell you what Islam is. If you ask Google Home who is Jesus Christ, um, you'll get no answer. So he took that to mean, and this is also because Fox News was saying this, that, you know, Google Home was anti-Christian. Was scandal. And Nicholas Negroponte, the, the media theorist years ago, he said that the Internet was going to bring us uh, a product that he called the Daily Me. And I think we, in 2000, in 2020, we've, we've gotten the Daily Me, and I see it when I go home. And I must say that my friends, my old friends, are very gracious <laughs> to me, considering the things they say about the mainstream media on Facebook. <laughs> Is, was political conversation with your, your friends in Yamhill um, common before you started reporting this book, or, or, or did, this, did this really kind of make you, give you a reason to talk to them about politics? You know, it would come up in, inevitably, um, but mostly we talked about friends and what was happening in town. It wasn't, you know, people aren't, weren't very focused on politics, and I think they become more focused on national politics, and I become more focused on national politics, and everybody's more sensitive about it. And my friend's Facebook feeds now, whatever they think, are all, all about politics all the time. Yeah. You know, the problems that you detail in this book, are they're, they're not surprising. You know, I mean, you, re you read this and it's sort of, you know, these are problems that if you've been paying attention, you understand the solutions also. There's nothing quite exactly novel about what you're presenting here. It's really the storytelling is where the, um, is where the, the real powerful information is coming from. But assuming that we get a Congress and a president who agree with you, what's the most important thing to get done first? Probably the first thing that will happen is a stimulus package of some kind. But I think that one of the most important things to get done in the long term is early childhood education, investing in people. Uh, because uh, I don't know how many people realize that the first five years of your life is when your brain is growing the fastest. So you don't want to interrupt anything in that growth pattern. And what happens is we always think that children are really resilient, that they will bounce back no matter what we do. That's actually not true. They're resilient to a point. And so if a child is in a home where there's child abuse, uh, where there's verbal abuse, where there's actually fighting going on and violence in the home, that actually creates a lot of stress. Babies feel stress just like um, adults do as well. And when stress happens, cortisol is coursing through their brain and what happens is that that cortisol impairs the development of the brain architecture. And it's a crucial time during that first five years of life. So if that brain architecture is impaired, that lasts for life. And so that's what's important is to actually try and uh, correct the trajectory that a child in that situation would actually be on. Because it leads to problems later on in life. Not just that you know they might end up as a juvenile delinquent, they might have, you know, get into to crime, but also health-wise, 
they, they, the research has shown that these kids um, can also have chronic diseases. They're more susceptible to, to suicides, to loneliness, to uh, chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. So that, you know, incurs huge amounts of healthcare costs. So if you can actually invest in early childhood edu- education, invest in a kid early, you're going to get savings later on down the line. Now, I would just so back that up that the highest return investment available in the U.S. today is not with a hedge fund, is not with private equity. It's investing in disadvantaged kids in early childhood education in the U.S. Hmm. And some of the evidence for that comes from Seattle. There is a, a lab at the University of Washington, iLabs, that does that looks at the brains of very young children. And um, it's right. produced some of the really top research in this area in the country. Do you both agree on everything in regards to this? You know, I mean, you're, you, you speak, you know, as a, a, a unit, but are, are, there, are there any disagreements that come up when you think about, like, uh, just these, these issues and solutions that, that, you're, um, that you're exploring? What do we disagree yeah, on? I'm yeah, trying no, to think. I'm interested in the answer. I'm, I'm trying to think of something we, you know, that we have kind of a different take on. Maybe I'm more optimistic about the role that corporations can play. I do think that they yeah, that can, may be. they should and can play a larger role. Um, they have an obligation, a social responsibility. And you had the business roundtable uh, saying that, okay, yeah, let's focus on stakeholder capitalism, moving away from shareholder capitalism. People say, oh, that's all talk, no action. And I understand, but that had to be the first step. And if you don't do that, yeah. you're not going to have the next step. So, you know, let's hold them accountable. Let's try and keep them you know, um, you know, hold their feet to the fire that, yeah, let's, let's focus on the workers as well as the shareholders. And so hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that. I'd say I'm also a little to the left of you. I, I'd be more up for a wealth tax, for example. I, I'm not sure you would. Right, um, right, right. My, my theory is that we already have a wealth tax. It's just called a property tax. but We levy it on, you know, widows on fixed incomes. And yeah. if they can manage to deal with that, then probably billionaires can too. Okay, well, I'll, I'll let you continue this after the, after the interview. But I, I do have one last question, if I can just keep you on for a little bit longer. You write in the book that you would not want to live anywhere else. This comes pretty early in the book. But man, I'm hard-pressed in reading all these stories of national neglect and decay to see why. Wouldn't middle-class Americans be better served living somewhere else? Well, I mean, we have kind of lived the American dream. And, you know, my dad was a refugee from Eastern Europe and arrived with nothing. And um, he, he left Europe precisely because he knew, he thought that a refugee would not be able to rise and be accepted uh, in, in France where he was then and came to the U.S. And that was available in this country. And I'm from Yamhill, too, and I was able to enjoy tremendous opportunities um, despite coming from a little farm town in nowhere. And Cheryl's grandfather was a peasant in Southern China. And so if you have the investments in human capital, and if you have the right parents and things work right, then there, this still is a land of enormous opportunity. But if you start with certain kinds of disadvantage, then, you know, it's still true in the here that typically you end up roughly where you start in ways that are profoundly unfair. And so, you know, I, I love Yam Hill for all the struggles that it goes through. And we have the farm there and 
We're, you know, now we're planting grapes and cider apples. We just had our cider apple harvest. We're trying to manage it from 3,000 miles away, and every catastrophe possible is happening. We built a deer fence, and we fenced the deer inside our deer fence. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a place that, that we love as a community and the country. We've seen it capable of great things, which makes our disappointment with its lack of equity in education, in health care, in, in labor, so particularly vivid. I mean, that's what is so striking, is that there are so many people from around the world who are desperately trying to come into the U.S. because they believe in the American dream, right? They want to immigrate here because they believe in the American dream. And here we have so many Americans uh, here in the U.S. who they may have a flat-screen TV, they may have a smartphone, but for them, the American dream is broken because we have just collapsed uh, the ability to climb up the economic ladder here. There's just so little mobility compared to the past. So we need to recover that. All right. That's Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn. We've been talking about their latest book, Tightrope. If you have not read it yet, please pick it up, give it a read. Nick, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was thank our pleasure. You, Mark. <laughs> And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. Thanks to everyone behind the scenes here who helped produce this live event as well. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.